The CBF Podcast Conversation is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry offers a practice-focused theological education. Learn from Fuller's seasoned scholar practitioners with online classes and apply what you're learning to your own context. Whatever your ministry goals, Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry will help you take the next step in your vocation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. That's fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. We are honored that you join us each week for Conversations That Matter. That's why in 2020, we've tried to pivot to make sure that we are covering the things that need to be talked about, like the plague of racism in America and how the church is responding to the COVID-19 crisis. We're also coming up on our 150th episode, which would not be possible without listeners like you engaging each week in the conversation. Don't forget that you can be a part of supporting the podcast while receiving some great benefits, such as joining an interview with an upcoming guest, books from authors interviewed, and a VIP experience at this summer's General Assembly. We want to thank William Johnson and Cindy Folendor for their monthly support of the podcast. Check out how you can support at cbf.net backslash podcast support. And now, on to our conversation. Today's conversation is brought to you by Youth Theology Network. YTN is your resource for helping high school students understand if God is calling them to ministry. Their new online hub is where you can connect with programs across the country, direct students to programs that meet their needs, read inspiring stories, and find vocational discernment resources. With YTN, you can help students take their next faithful step. For more information, visit youththeologynetwork.org. That's youththeologynetwork.org. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. Gary Mason. He's the founder and director of Rethinking Conflict. He's also an ordained Methodist minister holding a PhD from the School of Theology, University of Ulster. Gary, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you. It's good to be here on a on a dry winter's day in Ireland. And it's it's dry. That's the main thing for us Irish. <laughs> So we're going to get to your brilliant work and the organization here shortly, but uh, let's let the audience get to know you a little better. Tell us more about you. 
Yeah, I mean, I was a child of conflict, Andy. I mean, I, I grew up in this divided space, Northern Ireland, some people call it, others call it the North of Ireland, others people call it the Six Counties. Uh, the two tribes that inhabit this northern part of the island of Ireland can't even agree on the name. And, I mean, I grew up in that space, lived through our conflict as a, as a young child into adulthood from... 69 to 1998 and I often remind people invariably when there is conflict there's three things normally bubbling about there land identity and sadly religion are always the kind of fault lines invariably that happens when conflicts about and that's global Balkans is another example South Africa Israel Palestine at the moment so I grew up in that space and I almost say particularly now I'm speaking in the States, Northern Ireland's a tiny, tiny place. 1.7 million people. And over 30 years, we had 47,000 injuries. We had 4,000 deaths almost. We had tens of thousands of shootings, tens of thousands of bombings and 30,000 political prisoners. I often extrapolate those figures, Andy, and say to people in the United States, if the Irish conflict had have taken place in the United States, you would have had 800,000 dead and 6.4 million political prisoners. So we're a very deeply scarred, traumatised society, having lived through conflict in this island now for centuries. Well, for those that, you know, aren't familiar um, with this conflict and the history behind it, I know it's it's hard to say, give us a snapshot, but can you give us a, a snapshot of, of this history of conflict and, and unrest and violence in Northern Ireland? Yeah, I mean, depending where we start, Andy, maybe we could go back to the 11th or 12th century. Uh, 16th, 17th century was important when you had a lot of planters or settlers spilling from what we call GB today, namely Wales, England and Scotland, and primarily settled that northeastern part of the island of Ireland. They, they were Protestants, many of them of Calvinistic stock, and uh, they settled the land and in doing that moved the uh, indigenous Catholic Irish off their land. Uh, many of those settlers, listen, you're chatting to me today from Louisiana and you know the story, many of those, the Scots-Irish piled down those Appalachians and settled that space, many of them from Ireland, that northeastern part of Ireland and bringing a, a very much a Calvinistic theology uh, with them to the United States. So the conflict's rooted really in who does this land belong to? Uh, what is my identity? And as I often say, Toxic theologies or theologies of superiority that uh, demonizes or minimizes the other person's humanity. And I know 1972, when I, when I was a young boy, uh, many, many nights I'd have gone to bed listening to bombings and gunfire in the distance. In 1972, Andy, we had a terrorist incident every 40 minutes. Let me think of that. Every 40 minutes in a population of 1.7 million people. 
So this space is traumatized. One in five ex-prisoners are drinking themselves to death. So they're self-medicating through heavy alcohol abuse. Uh, you and I know why they're doing that. To bury the pain. To deal with the trauma. We've the highest rate in Western Europe of prescribed pharmaceutical drugs for depression. So even though the conflict's over, the pain lingers on. An Irish historian, Herbert Butler, talks about the, the sores of Irish history. And they're still there. And a lot of my work, theologically, psychologically, is trying to deal with legacy, dealing with the past, and trying to repair the damage that's been done through toxic politics and toxic religion, literally for centuries. You know, there's a, a personal experience of, of living through this turmoil, and then there's a, a pastoral experience. What was this experience like for you as an ordained minister? Uh, you know, again, uh, you spent nearly 30 years as a clergy person in Belfast and were involved in this Northern Irish peace process. Yeah. Yes, and I've worked closely with both the American administration, both Democrats and Republicans, uh, worked with the British administration and also the Irish administration. In many ways, Andy, interestingly, clergy, by and large, were seen as trusted interlocutors. So I was able to have some of the conversations that sometimes politicians couldn't have or other people couldn't have. And I've often modelled myself, uh, hopefully most of my life, in that first century Jewish rabbi called Jesus Christ. And as I look at his ministry 2,000 years ago, Jesus had some incredibly difficult, uncomfortable conversations. Uh, did Jesus talk to the enemy? Categorically, yes. I mean, classic example of that, as you and I know, is the, the Roman centurion. You know, contextualise that in today's world. Who would the Roman centurion be in the eyes of the United States, Britain, whoever? Because in the first century, the Romans were the most mightiest military machine on planet Earth. And they had the jackboot on the neck of the Jewish people. They, they were occupying them. They were persecuting them. They were giving them a raw deal. And Jesus engages with the enemy. Not only does he engage with the enemy, he comes out with that outlandish statement. I have not seen so great faith in all of Israel. I mean, you contextualise that today. I'll let your audience decide if that was an American clergy person. Think about the person looming large today that is your biggest enemy. Or I think of, in my British-Irish context, who is my biggest enemy? And you come out with that statement. Um, it's not something you want a popularity contest with, but maybe that's what leadership's about, taking what I call strategic prophetic risks. I know Oz Guinness once said that if uh, Moses... Had have taken a straw poll in the desert, he was an immense bother. But Moses was a leader and you were the people needed to go and wasn't being pulled back continually by being a people pleaser. So a lot of ministry in our space has been about taking strategic risks. And I've often said, if the gospel genuinely changes lives as we do, you've got to take the gospel into difficult spaces. Get it out of the kind of comfort zone of the church. 
Uh, I know this goes to a Baptist audience, so uh, let me quote a, a Southern Baptist of another generation, Dr. Vance Hafner, who's buried in Greensboro in the Carolinas. I visit his grave. Uh, Vance Hafner said, too many American churches are building million-dollar salt depositories in street corners when the church should be a salt dispenser. So for my mind, faith has to spill into the public space and has to make a difference in the raw reality of life. I mean, to quote, as a Methodist, i obviously going to quote John Wesley. Uh, John Wesley talks about social holiness or spreading scriptural holiness throughout the land. You can't spread scriptural holiness throughout the land in the closeted, rarefied, photo-restore mentality of the church. Faith needs to make a difference in the public space. And so my thesis has been, as a Christian, that we need to talk to those with whom we disagree and provide a moral framework to allow people to leave violence and pursue better choices. Now, in 2009, uh, history was made in the church you were pastoring. Tell us what happened there. Yeah. It's two of the most deadly terrorist organizations, militia organizations, freedom fighters. People see these conflicts through different lenses. But they did their weapons decommissioning statement from my building. As part of the Good Friday Agreement, as you know, Andy, and hopefully many of your listeners, the Good Friday Agreement in April 1998. Uh, was our peace agreement, chaired by an American Democratic senator, Senator George Mitchell. It took him two long, painful, protracted years getting the protagonist over the line. Interestingly, George Mitchell said on the day that the Good Friday Agreement was signed, which was Good Friday, obviously, 1998, he said words that were incredibly prophetic. He said, if you think getting this agreement was difficult, implementing it will be even more difficult. And that's where the church comes in, in the implementation, the bedding down, the rebuilding of divided communities after a protracted civil war. And those two groups, because of work I had done, chose to read their weapons decommissioning statement from my church building. Now, as you and I know, invariably, when people who have been involved in political violence read any form of statement, uh, just go on YouTube if you want to clarify this one, they're behind tables in dark clothing, invariably black with balaclavas, and symbolism, flags, are behind them. There was none of that. There were no masks. There was no dark clothing. There was no flags. People were in suits, and they read that statement. And a colleague of mine said to me, you know, Gary, this is what Isaiah is really about. Beating swords into pruning hooks and plowshares. And he said, there's not a more fitting place for the statement to be read. And I think I've often said, and you know, as my listeners today in the US, how are we using sacred space within the church? And one of the things a number of us as religious leaders in the Irish context tried to do was to use what we call sacred space for bringing peace reconciliation and healing. I mean, if the gospel makes a difference, it's gotta make a difference in fragmented, difficult spaces. And so that statement, which got global publicity, took place in the inner city, the last Saturday in June 2009. And it was a 
momentous day. Uh, John Hume, the Irish nationalist Catholic, said he wanted to see the gun finally out of Irish politics. And that was another step in removing the gun or the weapon which has been in Irish politics, literally, sadly, for centuries. Well, just two years before that, um, you know, and I know you probably don't want to talk about being recognized in such a way, but you were actually recognized by Queen Elizabeth for your contribution to peace building. Uh, what was that experience like? You know, it, was, it, was, it was interesting in a sense, Andy, because, I mean, every year, sort of the sort of British monarchy recognized certain individuals. That could be from a, a neurosurgeon uh, to an academic, the clergy, and I was one of the clergy that was recognized for peace building. One of the interesting things about all that, it was October, yeah, 2007. Four months later, uh, Queen Elizabeth and her husband, Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, actually came to visit my church building in Belfast. And at that stage, as, as you know from colleagues in the US, I was painfully putting together a project called Skenos. And primarily, I mean, the Buckingham Palace more or less came to give their, their blessing to that, that project. As you know, it ended up a $30 million, as I called it, a kind of post-conflict shared space urban village with all the uh, architecture of church but a, a major wing of social justice dealing with conflict transformation, dealing with employability, dealing with physical regeneration in a space that had in many ways borne the brunt of 30 years of sectarian violence. So, and you know, people often ask me, what was it like, Gary, to have to like host the Queen for 90 minutes? She's a very warm, affirming individual uh, uh, and has a wonderful sense of humor as well. So yeah, it was a it was a great experience and an honor to be able to to do that and uh, to talk about faith making a difference in the marketplace because she is a person of faith. Well, in two thousand fifteen, you founded Rethinking Conflict. Uh, tell us more about this organization. Yeah, I mean, I was ordained, Andy, way 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 back. Seems a lifetime ago. Two thousand, or sorry, nineteen eighty seven, May nineteen eighty seven. And I spent more or less almost 30 years in the inner city of Belfast, at the height of the conflict, after the conflict ended, never more than 200 yards from what we call uh, peace lines or interfaces, which are basically uh, Berlin-type walls, which are still here today, that separate Catholic and Protestant communities. And a number of colleagues were encouraging me, saying, you know, Gary, for the last sort of 10 to 15 years of ministry before you uh, sort of allegedly retire you should try to give some of your experience away and from about 2010 onwards i was being asked of more conversations particularly around the israeli-palestinian conflict i've always had a relationship with many churches in the u.s and i suppose i listen to some colleagues in the u.s some colleagues in the middle east and some colleagues in my british irish context and uh, took a decision to put together really a small non-profit Christian NGO called Rethinking Conflict. And I know I spent my time still working on the Irish peace process, still building peace and engaging here and using uh, theology and those sacred texts in a way that makes a difference, uh, as well as continuing to speak in the United States and increasingly doing work in the Middle East. I mean, 
And the iPad had a thousand Israelis and Palestinians in Belfast in the last 10 years. Of all shades of opinion, from those you could say they're on the extreme right to those who are on the left. Trying to bring as many people to the table as possible because if you're going to build peace, you need to bring as many people inside the tent as possible and try to make sure that people feel ownership of a new beginning and a new start. And that's crucial. And to me also theologically, I mean, that's what the, the gospel's about. It's bringing as many people as possible to new beginnings, to a faith-based experience of Jesus Christ. And so that principle also has to apply to me in the concept of negotiating an end to violence. This CBF podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we help lay leaders, clergy, and congregations find ways to thrive in the midst of change. Our experience in highly trained consultants and coaches don't prescribe one-size-fits-all solutions. Instead, we work alongside you and take your unique congregation and ministry context seriously. We believe the wisdom for thriving comes from the leadership of the Spirit. We help create the spaces for congregations to hear and recognize that God-given wisdom. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in ministry. You've talked about bringing theology and psychology into the conversation of conflict. Uh, what does that mean and, and what does that look like? Looking back on religion and like you, Andy, I mean, I've been shaped by religion all my life. I started going to church with my grandfather when I was four years of age. Uh, I had a very strong conversion experience in my early 1920s. But I also have had to ask the question, there's so much that religion has got wrong. Uh, Jonathan Sachs, the former chief rabbi of the British Commonwealth, who died just a few weeks ago. I mean, Jonathan Sachs said this in one point, and it is a substantial one, the critics of religion are right. I mean, religion has done harm. It has led to crusades, jihads, inquisitions and pogroms. It has shed the blood of human sacrifice in the name of high ideals. People have hated in the name of the God of love, practiced cruelty in the name of the God of compassion, waged war in the name of the God of peace and killed in the name of the God of life. Uh, those are undeniable facts and they are terrifying. I mean, interestingly, the great believers have always known this. I'm not telling your listeners anything new. I mean, Pascal once said, men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from a religious conviction. I mean, Jonathan Swift, who many of your readers will know as the uh, author of Gulliver's Travel, but he was also Dean of Christ Church, uh, the Anglican Church in Dublin. Swift said, we have just enough religion to make us hate, but not enough to make us love one another. And C.S. Lewis, I, I came to faith as a kind of, to use Philip Yancey's phrase, I kind of slipped away from uh, any interest in religion, I suppose, at 16, 17, and come back to God in my 20s. Uh, through reading C.S. Lewis, but C.S. Lewis said this, I think we must fully face the fact 
that when Christianity does not make a man very much better, it makes him very much worse. And so the church also needs to acknowledge its wrongdoing publicly. Not in whispered confessions in the rarefied atmosphere of church. I mean, anti-Semitism, I mean, let, let's be honest. I mean, anti-Semitism, primarily what Hitler did, was take what you and I would call uh, religious anti-Semitism and made it racial anti-Semitism. Uh, I mean, as one uh, Jewish scholar said, uh, the missionaries of Christianity, and that's who it was, said to the Jews, you have no right to live among us as Jews. The secular rulers who followed complained, you have no rights, plural, to live among us. Uh, the German Nazis at last decreed, you have no right to live. So in reality, Andy, the Germans didn't discard the past. They built upon it. And that's why I want to say that confession is so, so important. I mean, it'd be okay for me to say, well, look, I wasn't uh, alive whenever uh, settlers came from Scotland and England and uh, pushed Catholics off their land. It was nothing to do with me. But yet as I look at Daniel and Nehemiah, and we all know those texts pretty, pretty well, they were confessing sins that happened centuries ago. They were not happening in the present day. I mean, you know, an example to those communal sins, Daniel confessed the sins that happened in another location, in another generation. And you know the phrase, we and our kings, our princes and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we have sinned against you. Nehemiah wasn't personally present for the sins of idolatry and oppression that he confessed. But he knew that for the sake of his people, there needed to be public acknowledgement of those sins. And I've often visited the Holocaust Museum there in Washington, D.C. And in the Hall of Remembrance, in the very large letters, Deuteronomy 4 and 9, where it says, Only guard yourself, guard your soul carefully, lest you forget the things your eyes saw, and lest these things depart your heart all the days of your life. And you shall make them known to your children and your children's children. And that's why I often say to people in the US, to people in my space, to people in South Africa, to people in the Middle East, language is so important. And Jesus talks about a final judgment. He just doesn't talk about actions. He talks also about what we say. And Abraham, Joshua, Michelle, who walked with Martin Luther King Jr. during the Civil Rights Movement in the 60s, said, It was words, not machines, that created Auschwitz. Let me just say that again. It was words, not machines, that created Auschwitz. And so in many of our spaces in the United States, uh, in Britain and Ireland over Brexit, in the Middle East, we have a phenomenon, and again quoting Jonathan Sachs, he calls it linguistic violence, which is no less savage than physical violence, because you know, I know, words wound, insults injure, evil speech destroys communities. When we use language as a weapon and wield it brutally, I mean, the Jewish sages said, whoever speaks with an evil tongue, it is if they have denied God. Because evil speech kills three people, 
the one who says it, the one who accepts it, and the one about whom it is said. And in Jewish theology, they, they twin this concept of evil speech with leprosy. Tezararat in the Hebrew. What an astonishing sight to see leprosy, a very disfiguring disease, as a symbol and a symptom of evil speech. So if language is God's gift to humankind, we need to use it to heal situations, not harm or destroy other people. So yes, theology to me speaks in the divided spaces and it has to make a difference. It's pretty easy to say that you become an expert on peace building. I mean, you've literally lectured all over the world on the subject. You've, you've lived the experience for over 40 years. You've, you've taught seminarians about it and you founded an organization on conflict transformation. As we record this interview, uh, we're in the first week of Advent, this season of peace. And for many people who have not experienced turmoil, peace is a pleasant and vague concept. But for those who've experienced the hell of social and political and religious tumult, uh, it, it's, a, it's a pained and deeply desired reality. So how does one begin to develop a, a theology of peace? And subsequently, how does one develop a theology of peace building? I often look at the church in the West, and I think there are two strands to the church. There's the pastoral and there's the prophetic. I think by and large, Andy, your listeners may agree or disagree, I think by and large most churches do a pretty reasonable job pastorally. Baptism, weddings, funerals, marital counselling, bereavement counselling, etc, etc, etc. But pastorally... What is the role of the church in the public space? And I think for many of us, that sharpened prophetic edge of the church we've lost. I mean, Wesley, to quote him again, talks about personal holiness and social holiness. So how do we change societies in the public space? And I think the way to do that is by engaging with societies and being out in those spaces. In other words, it's having those difficult uncomfortable conversations that sometimes people don't want to have. And I think the role of the church, I remember way, way back in the mid, well, 1980s, an organisation called Econi, it was Evangelical Contribution in Northern Ireland, and a wide range of evangelicals, to those who would have seen themselves as conservative with a large C, a small C, those who may have seen themselves as an evangelical left, came together to put together a document called For God and His Glory Alone. Why, why did they use that title? Well, they used that title, Andy, because the group that you referred to a few moments ago in June 2009 had a motto. For God and Ulster being the northeastern part of the island of Ireland. And that was assuming that God had automatically taken on a British identity. God is not British. He's not South African, German, Canadian, American. Because St Paul reminds me very clearly, he says, Gary, your citizenship 
is in heaven. And while my British or Irish passport, or for many of your listeners, your American passport is important, it's temporal. And I think sometimes looking at the church in the 21st century, we actually have confused the temporal with the eternal. I had a quotation used to be pinned here in my desk and it got a little bit old, but I remember it. It's by A.W. Tozer, the old evangelical mystic who pastored the People's Church in Toronto. And it was a simple quotation I used to see every day. Lord, keep me eternity conscious. Because as we look at politics today in your space and my space, sometimes politics is almost talked about as if it is the eternal. I saw someone commenting on the American situation recently where they said, it was an article on Christianity Today, and they said, politics has a strong grip on our hearts. The gospel's grip should be stronger. And in my space, and I'll let your listeners self-examine themselves, that's not my job, but in my space, for many people in that world of evangelicalism, which I grew up in, I can assure you that politics had a stronger grip on their hearts than the gospel. And I often comment, Andy, you know, when that final eschatological curtain finally falls on planet Earth, and one day it will. It is not going to be uh, Boris Johnston, uh, Vladimir Putin, Angela Merkel, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, George Bush, Ronald Reagan, President Macron, standing on the stage. There will be one person called Jesus Christ. So I want to say politics, yes, I'm not denying their importance. I've spent my life in political dialogue. But I do know this. In the realm of final eschatological nuances for planet Earth, it's the eternal that's going to last. So while my British Irish passport may be important to me, Paul reminds me incredibly clearly, you know, Gary, your citizenship is in heaven. And I think it's important that because of that, that we allow the gospel to spill into difficult spaces and transform lives. You know, look back there to the first century. I mean, Simon the Zealot. You know, Simon the Zealot was a was a first century Jewish terrorist. I mean, he was involved as a zealot to drive out the Roman occupying forces. And then he encountered Jesus Christ and his life was transformed. So if the gospel means anything, and I'm not going to get into a debate today about... Uh, Final destiny. Some may be listening here who believe in a uh, literal hell. Others may believe in annihilation. Others may be universal. I don't know. But I know a quotation of William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, when he was taunted and teased by an atheist in London in the 19th century. Someone said to him, Andy, he said, you know, Mr. Booth, if I believed what you believed, that those who die in their sins... Go to a literal hell. I would crawl over broken glass night and day begging sinners to repent. So I've come to the conclusion that the gospel is true. 
that the gospel is eternal, that the gospel does make a difference. And while I live on planet Earth and have engaged more than many people in some very difficult situations, I still keep an eye on the eternal. That is what has to shape my ministry. Politics has a strong grip on our hearts. The gospel's grip should be stronger. You said that, that too much linguistic violence happening globally, and we want to create safe spaces where opponents and protagonists actually hear and understand each other. Uh, American culture has become so polarizing. I mean, I can't imagine, let's say, an ardent Trump supporter and a progressive sitting down to have a civil conversation. And yet you've brought opposing sides to the table in Belfast and Jerusalem and so forth. How does that happen? What does that look like? So the phrase that I've often used, that the church needs to take what I call strategic prophetic risks. Now I know if I was pastoring a church in America today, be I a Republican or Democrat, I would ensure that people would be hearing one another. How do we respect the dignity of all people? Because the problem we have and your listeners have listening to me today is the early chapters of Genesis tell me quite clearly that all humans are made in the image of God. That means every person, Republicans, Democrats, Catholics, Protestants, we all have God's imprint on that. And Peter uh, Weiner, who's actually a top official in George Bush's administration, said, we need to give voice to what each side fears can help us make progress. He said no administration should ever underestimate people feeling like they are heard and the importance of it. So if I was in the US, I would be creating what we call in my space, listening circles. A Jewish theologian once said, dehumanization precedes genocide. And if you continue to dehumanize another person, you remove them from the narrative, you remove them from the story. So can't churches create spaces to allow people to hear the other? How do we do that? George Washington's uh, celebrated letter to members of the tourist synagogue in Newport, Rhode Island, honoured American Jews. And you know, it's one of the most remarkable achievements of the American Republic. It's also, and I want Americans to hear this today, it's also one of the United States' lasting contributions to nations across the globe. It's insistence that no matter how individuals worship or how they identify religiously, this is George Washington speaking, not some Irish guy, they will count as full and equal American citizens. And as you acknowledge, I mean, religion can be a cause of societal tensions and strife, but it can also be a very constructive force in conflict resolution. You know, when I'm preaching in the US, I 
I stay with Republicans. I stay with Democrats. And it disturbs me to see what has happened to so, so many people of faith. I'm not coming with a kind of blueprint, this is what you need to do. But surely people who profess the name of Jesus need to at least be listening with, with to one another. And if nothing else, they were writing an article a number of years ago for a Florida magazine. How do Americans even disagree well? Because disagreements are okay. The difficulty is the way sometimes we disagree actually brings the gospel in the disrepute. And the goal of the gospel is to transform and change people's lives for people outside the religious space that many of your listeners inhabit. As they look in, I know many of them are saying, I don't want anything to do with that. It's mean. It's aggressive. It's abrasive. It's using linguistic violence. And so we get back to that identity just for a moment. People, you know, often ask about uh, interest and identity, you know, uh, our interest is like we want a market economy, uh, we want stocks and shares doing well on Wall Street, etc., etc., etc. And I know one writer there recently writing a book in the American context asked the question, you know, why are we uh, so polarized? And he suggests that all our identities, racial, religious, geographical, ideological, and cultural, have attained such a weight that it's breaking a lot in American politics and tearing at the bonds that holds this country together. And so we ask the question, is there, you know, you've got to ask the question, what is the resolution? Because people say, on you know, people that are on the right are, are saying, you know, we're, we're driven uh, towards the, the market. Uh, people on the left are saying, you know, we're driven towards the state. What about this dimension called societies? What about this whole dimension of covenants? And let me, let me just read this to you. It's George MacLeod on the cross. Here's what he says. I simply argue that the cross be raised again at the centre of the marketplace as well as on the steeple of the church. I'm recovering the claim that Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves, on a town garbage heap at a crossroads of politics so cosmopolitan that they had to write his title in Hebrew and in Latin and in Greek, and at the kind of place where cynics talk smut and thieves cursed and soldiers gamble because that is where he died and that is what he died about, and that is where Christ's own ought to be. And that is what church people ought to be about. So perhaps if the church lifted their eyes away from temporal politics, which will always pass, and looked at the eternal value of every human being, and particularly got away from this fortress church door mentality, hiding behind fortress doors, and we allowed faith to spill into the public square, maybe, just maybe, that would reprioritize what the church is really meant to be about. 
You know, Abraham's a classic example of that, a person who went on a, a journey, not knowing at all where he was actually going to go. This might be a hard question to measure, no, <laughs> uh, you know, considering, you know, we're still in the thick of this pandemic, but what do you think 2020 has done to the, to the progress of conflict transformation? Yeah, it's been interesting, I suppose, for us, because, I mean, I'm not traveling at all. I mean, as I mentioned to you earlier there, I mean, we, we were in the U.S. and we come back in mid-March and basically we've been on the island of Ireland ever since that. I suppose as well, I think as well, I mean, for us more sophisticated Westerners, it hopefully teaches us a lesson about the fragility of life and the uncertainty of life and the unpredictability of life. And yet, you know, American theologian talks about that sometimes some of the best things in life are totally unplanned and unscripted. I mean, this theologian Batterson, he says this, he says, I'm, I'm not a movie critic, but in my humble entertainment estimation, the greatest movies have the highest levels of uncertainty, whether the uncertainty is romantic or dramatic. And he suggests to us, and maybe we need to hear this, high levels of uncertainty maybe make the best lives. So is faith actually embracing the uncertainties of life? And he suggests we should embrace relational uncertainty. It's called romance. We should embrace spiritual uncertainty. It's called mystery. We should embrace occupational uncertainty. It's called destiny. We should embrace intellectual uncertainty. It's called revelation. So if COVID-19 has taught us anything, it's the unpredictability and uncertainty of life. But surely as people of faith, the one certainty we do have is those words of Job's where he says, you know what? Even though God slays me, I'm going to trust in him. I think if you trust God a little, you'll know God a little. Abraham gave all he had. And if anything, COVID-19 has taught us the fragility and unpredictability of life. But surely for those people of faith, it must be the certainty of God. I think a lesson of Abraham's life is, you know, put your past in proper perspective. Learn as much as you can. I often say the past is meant to be learned from, not lived in. What is the vision of the American church? What is the vision of the global church as we look ahead? I mean, surely COVID-19 should be a launching pad for us to be able to say, in this uncertain world, faith in Christ provides a space, a dimension of certainty in a very uncertain space. You know, for a person listening to this, um, that's not sure what they can do to be a peace builder in their community. Uh, what, what practical advice do you give them? I think I would find someone who doesn't think like you or doesn't agree with your worldview or interpretation and hear their story. Questions like, what shaped you as a human being? Parents, grandparents, school, 
church? Maybe none of those. And see the imprint of Jesus Christ in every person. I mean, if we do believe that God died on a cross to give people new beginnings, it's not our job to be selective as regards who's in and who's out. So I think having those difficult and comfortable conversations would be crucial. Because I think it's only when we get close to people, we hear things that we can't hear from a distance. We, we see things that we can't necessarily see. And we ask the question, if I was born in that person's space, I wonder what choices I would have made. You know, reconciliation, is, it's no cheap matter, as a South African theologian said. And you know, Andy said, it does not come about by simply papering over deep-seated differences. You know, reconciliation does presuppose confrontation. Without that, we don't get reconciliation, but merely a glossing over of differences. He said the running sores of society cannot be healed with the use of a band-aid. Reconciliation presupposes an operation, a cutting to the very bone without anaesthesia, because the infection is not just on the surface. So maybe the church needs to do some theological, surgical work over the next few years in your space and most certainly in my space. Because we all know at times, if we're honest, churches can be very dishonest spaces where we avoid the things we know we should naturally talk about for fear of offending the other. My suggestion is if you create a space, an affirming space, a warm space, a space where the intention is not to wound or hurt the other and try to get to know and listen to the other, I think for many people that can make a very profound difference. We're not talking about necessarily theological agreement, but at least an understanding of why that person came to that decision or to that worldview. I think sometimes we work on the assumption that people take an opposite view to us they're doing it to annoy us. Most times that's not the case. They're doing it because they've thought, wrestled, struggled, cried. And this is where their life story has taken them. As a person of faith and as a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to know why. What shaped this person? Why did they make those choices? Because when all of us spill from our mom's womb, we're incredibly innocent. But we all hear voices that disturb and disfigure. What voices have disturbed and disfigured those with whom I disagree? Where did those voices come from? Were they political voices? Were they religious voices? person said to me once, who sadly got involved in political violence in my space. He said, you know, Gary, when you were taught Catholics were scum in Sunday school, it was much easier to kill them. Now, what that person did was wrong, categorically. I shall not kill. 
But what shaped a mind as a young boy? To see the other as less than human. Or not as theologically correct as what I am. And that resulted when things spilled into chaos here in the late 60s, early 70s. Many young men killing people they didn't even know. Because they embraced a different flag or a different theological view. As one person once said, you know, Andy, in the late 1960, someone did not fly over Northern Ireland, spray us all with lunatic gas, and we woke up one day and said, okay, let's start killing one another. We had generations here of toxic politics and toxic religion that led people to kill they believed in the name of God because God was undoubtedly on their side and not on the other side. So it goes back to what I said, how we speak. And that's why I hear those words of Jesus. You know, Gary, you will give an account of every word you said as well as every action. So I just think the way we speak, the way we talk, the way we disagree with the other is so, so important. Again, we're in the thick of this pandemic, but uh, what are you working on that we should be aware of? What do you have next? At the moment, I'm actually doing a couple of lectures in uh, Jerusalem this uh, over this coming weekend. Uh, really, I mean, I'm working with all sides there. Um, both with Jewish people, people within the Islamic tradition and people within the Christian tradition, uh, trying to look at a, a thesis we kind of have here uh, called the uh, political peace process, Andy, versus the social peace process. The church actually is really part of what I call the social peace process. Uh, politicians, and I have many, many political friends, but you know, politicians uh, work on the assumption that once the deal is done, societal healing automatically follows and you know you and I know that you know nothing could be further from the truth societal healing comes about through many many different things forgiveness biblical principle uh, reconciliation atonement strategies creating spaces and churches for those who were sworn enemies to listen to understand so I'm working with some civic society organizations uh, one or two friends who are Jewish rabbis as well, looking at how do they in their space use theology well to allow people to hear and disagree well and engage with one another. So that's over the next few days uh, what I will be uh, up to. Like I'm doing an interview in the next few days as well with an academic from the United States just around Brexit and the chaos that is caused in this space as well. And again, it's another classic example. No matter what side of that debate you're on, the language that has been used here across those who wanted to remain, those who wanted to leave, has been unhealthy. We've, we've demonised again the other person. Well, for those that want to stay connected with Gary, you can visit RethinkingConflict.com. 
Gary, it's unbelievably humbling that a person of your expertise and experience would take time to talk to us. Um, thank you for calling us away from linguistic violence and to create safe spaces where opponents and protagonists actually hear and understand each other. And yes, I'm more than happy to talk anytime. I'll finish with a quote. I think it was A.W. Tozer that said, a person who's too big to preach to a little crowd is too little to preach to a big crowd. So we all need that healthy dose of humility. And I often say no conversation is wasted when Jesus is at the center. Today's conversation is brought to you by Youth Theology Network. YTN is your resource for helping high school students understand if God is calling them to ministry. Their new online hub is where you can connect with programs across the country, direct students to programs that meet their needs, read inspiring stories, and find vocational discernment resources. With YTN, you can help students take their next faithful step. For more information, visit youththeologynetwork.org. That's youththeologynetwork.org. Well, that's it. That's our conversation. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites at fuller.edu and healthychurch.org. Check out cbf.net for information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, chaplains, and much more. Oh, and uh, one more thing. I don't think we've mentioned it on the podcast before, but visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for ways that you can contribute to the CBF podcast conversations and get some pretty cool stuff in the